Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Mutech Teacher Talk. This is your host, Heath, from www.mutechteachernet.com. In this episode, I welcome to the podcast Master Sergeant William Timmons. Sergeant Timmons is a trombonist with the United States Air Force Band in Washington, D.C. He received a Bachelor of Music degree from the University of South Carolina and a Master of Music degree from the University of Cincinnati College Conservatory of Music. His teachers have included Brad Edwards, Tim Anderson, Jim Markey, and Joe Alessi. Prior to joining the Air Force, he spent two seasons as co-principal trombone with the New World Symphony in Miami, Florida. He is a native of Sumter, South Carolina, and perhaps most significantly in my mind, he was a member of the Sumter High School Band Program, where yours truly had the honor to be his band director for a few years. Sergeant Timmons, welcome. I am so excited and thankful to have the opportunity to chat with you today. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. I've kept up with you over the years, mostly through Facebook, and have seen the arc of your career up to this point. But for our listeners, can you go back and tell me when and how did you first get interested in music and how did that develop into a career path for you? Mm, So early on, uh, when I was about eight, I took piano lessons for about a year. I did not like to practice. And so my mom said, if you're not going to practice, I'm not going to pay for lessons. So I actually um, stopped music for a little while. And then sixth grade came along and I, um, I joined the middle school band and I picked the trombone because I heard that all the trombones sit together and my best friend at the time was going to be forced to play the trombone by his family who already owned one. So I said, I want to sit next to my best friend. I'll play the trombone too. So it kind of started from there, but because of my piano studies, I learned how to read music, both treble and bass clef somewhat enough to kind of have a head start on people who are starting fresh. So uh, when I joined band, the reading the music part was actually quite easy and I could focus a little more on making the crazy beginner trombone sounds and figuring that out. But I kind of took to it and stuck with it, started taking little region band auditions and and kind of got a thrill out of that. It was scary, but you know, thrilling and uh, gave me something to practice for and that's kind of where my love for the trombone and for music started my mom used to say that she would find me sleeping and the trombone would just be in the bed also like I didn't put it away or something and I I don't remember that but she she said that so I I did take to it enough to to play it every day and just really play around with it now I also came from a very musical non-musical family like no my parents didn't play an instrument or sing my grandparents they sing at church you know like no one played an instrument in my immediate family so for having no musicians in my family they were a very musical family they could carry a tune they could match pitch we had a piano around the house and I remember my grandparents Ma specifically sitting with me at the piano and plunking out tunes like Mary Had a Little Lamb and other familiar little songs and I would just see it happening and and take it all in and and I think my ear for music grew earlier than I realized and so anyways in early high school I had a great mentor Robert Slade who became the assistant band director at the middle school fantastic trombone player and just kind of turned my world upside down on the trombone front and uh, really challenged me with a lot of new things and um, showed me that there was 
a higher bar for everything. So I really credit a lot of where I'm at now to Robert and his guidance, the time he took with me. It was it was just really special. I didn't know what I had at the moment, but looking back, it was like all because of him. And then he went to Cincinnati College Conservatory for his doctorate studies. And I. it's kind of funny how I also ended up there. I find a lot of my career path actually mimics his. He became a trombonist in the Army Band program. And that was before I joined the military for, for my career. Uh, future career. But all along the way, he's been a real support system and I keep in touch with him uh, today. So, but going back to my first interest in music, it it was definitely that 10th grade year of high school when Robert kind of showed me the way of like, hey, if you want this to be a career path, stop messing around. I, I remember I was fiddling around with clarinets and saxophones and euphoniums and things that were not trombone. He was like, you need to put those things down and just do trombone. It's hard enough, you know, as it is. So just just focus up a little bit and, and you know, you, you could do it. So that's that's really where it took off for me. And, and I just continued through college, graduate school, and then this postgraduate fellowship program in Miami. And they really were all about training the musicians to win jobs in professional ensembles. And my second year, I got accepted to the U.S. Air Force Band in D.C. So you've been a member of the uh, ceremonial brass in D.C. since, I believe, 2012. Yeah, it was actually 2011 in July, um, and I I got to D.C. in September of 2011, so almost 2012, but I'm coming up to nine years doing this. Wow, so uh, tell me a little bit about your duties and what your life is like as a musician in one of the premier ensembles in the United States Air Force. So it's it's quite interesting. The Air Force Band has a, around 180, uh, give or take, people in it. Now, that's a huge band, right? Well, we actually break out into smaller uh, units where the ceremonial band is actually quite different than the concert band, which is different than the singing sergeants, the choir. And we also have a jazz band, a rock band, and a string ensemble. So there's actually six full independent flights, we call them, that function separately and independently. So my ceremonial brass group is about 35, 36 people, and it's trumpets, trombones, French horns, euphonium, tuba, and percussion. And that's the the main group. It's a brass band of sorts. And so my duties are very different than other people's duties, um, but I do ceremonies and almost only ceremonies. So most of what I do is funeral ceremonies at Arlington National Cemetery in my almost nine years, I've done exactly 1,475 funerals at Arlington. Wow. And I know that because uh, we are not doing full honors funerals right now. And I did a a count, you know, we have a database that keeps track of it. So um, exactly 1,475, which is a lot. The other things that I do are promotions, retirements, um, arrivals of heads of state from other countries and a lot of things in between but mostly funerals i would say 90 percent of what i do or more is funerals with some of these other ceremonies interspersed in there so a lot of my time is spent at arlington national cemetery instead of at my home base which is joint base anacostia bowling in dc well i know that in addition to being an accomplished performer 
You're also a composer and arranger. Tell me a little bit about that aspect of your career and some of the highlights as a composer and arranger. So composition has always kind of been, I want to say it's it's been a natural thing for me where I would improv in jazz band in high school. I remember, you know, taking solos and stuff. This was kind of the, the start of just writing my own music. Uh, but now my career highlights, one of which was last year, July 4th, the ceremonial brass played on the Today Show, NBC Today Show. And 15 million people tuned in and and we played an arrangement of mine of Yankee Doodle and that was just really cool it was really fun to write for our group because while we do mainly funerals we have some spectacular musicians uh, brass players and so just to to hear my colleagues just go to town on something that I wrote was really thrilling and to have 15 million people tuned in is just there's a lot of composers who haven't had their music seen by that many people. So I'm very fortunate on that front. Other career highlights as a composer, um, I've written a number of things. Like I, I wrote something for a past teacher and we're thinking about recording that on a CD with him. I've also had my some of my works performed at the International Trombone Festival and the uh, International Tuba and Euphonium Conference. So those, those are really cool things to have your music performed for other people and I get notes you know Facebook messages hey man I just saw your your piece performed at ITF I thought it was really great you know and so those kinds of things are really rewarding as a composer yeah I can remember you composing and arranging when you were in high school and uh, in particular I remember one arrangement I believe it was America the Beautiful that you did for our jazz band and we actually performed that out at Shaw Air Force Base when the 77th Fighter Squadron uh, was returning from a deployment uh, from Iraq following Desert Storm. And that was, um, that really is a day that I will always remember. So, I mean, what was that thing that really got you? I know you mentioned the, the improv and playing, but, you know, how was that part of that development and being interested in composition and arranging? Yeah, I think my mind just, to this day I noodle like I I don't sit down and do like a very strict warm-up like a lot of these guys do um and maybe that's a fault of mine but I noodle around I I have ideas in my brain that are spinning around and and I just kind of get them out um I've I've always been pretty good at connecting the sound that's in my head to getting it out of my trombone or the piano or, or whatever, I know what's in my head and how to make that sound become a reality. And, and I do, I think that goes to my early days before, like I said, my grandma just plucked it out on the piano and, and I, I visually saw it happening and, you know, the, the left hand side was the low stuff and the right hand side was the high stuff and it goes one by one. And so it started clicking pretty early for me, but yeah, as as far as the interest in it, I think my friends and colleagues are a big inspiration for me. So in high school, I had a lot of great friends who were really great high school musicians, um, Jerry Davis, uh, to, to name one, and uh, he's a trumpet player. And so I, I wanted to challenge Jerry, you know, what can I write that makes Jerry struggle a little bit, but also sound good, right? And 
tuba player Lee Gaiman was a great tuba player so I, I wanted to give him something fun not just like a long note to play so I wanted to give him something to bounce around on and play more notes than usual and so really my friends were the inspiration there early on for what kind of things I was composing and I had a limited composition vocabulary back then but I, I liked to write things that sounded good. They were sonorous. They were a lot of thirds, a lot of major chords um, or minor chords, but nothing too crazy because it just didn't sound good to me. So I, I liked writing things that had a sweet sound. America the Beautiful was definitely, it fits into that category. And, and it's funny thinking back to that arrangement uh, until you mentioned it. I kind of forgot about that. That was so long ago. And and to me, it was just, it was a different time, you know, as a high schooler, I'm not thinking about the, the wars and the, um, the fighter squadrons, you know, um, but it's so funny. Now I'm in the air force. Like I went to basic training, I'm in the air force. And so my greater air force brethren, um, and sisters would be these people who were returning from deployment and to know that I was doing some service to them before I even joined was that's that's a really interesting and special thought so yeah that that's really cool yeah it was you know that was one of the things about living in Sumter uh, and having the Air Force Base just there on the edge of town it was you know there are constantly uh, jets in the air and so many you know families that lived in Sumter, you know, had, you know, were either active Air Force or a lot of retired Air Force that came back to Sumter. So that was a pretty ingrained part of life in, in Sumter. And I suppose in any town that has a, a military base there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, thinking it was funny listening to you mention some of those names, because thinking about that time, those couple of years there in Sumter, that really was an exceptional group of, of musicians that all kind of came together at that same time. Cause you were, uh, made me think Dan Dickinson, yep. another member Dan, cause he ended up in the air force also I think, yep. as a pilot, as a pilot. Yeah. It's full circle. It's crazy. Yep. Yeah. There's so many, uh, at, at that time that went on to become musicians and, and teachers and, but anyway, I, I digress. I'm getting nostalgic here. So <laughs> yeah, it's very nostalgic talking with you. You know, it's interesting too because we we both sort of knew each other before we arrived at these places, kind of where we are now in our careers. So I teach music technologies five years now that I teach music technology full time and have been really involved in, particularly in the state of Georgia, where as a curriculum area. It's grown tremendously, and then just the career opportunities in Georgia, and a lot of that has come from the media and film industry that's here. So you know, it's been it's been really uh, a growing area. But you know, I wanted to talk because I know that you're very involved with technology also. So when you started, you know, composing and arranging, uh, like a lot of uh, classically trained musicians, when we think of music technology, it's primarily uh, you know, for the purpose of notation and using a notation program such as Finale for composition and arranging is for a lot of people that first step into what we consider music technology. But I know you've kind of taken that further into using technology and electronics as a part of composition. So I just wanted to ask, like, what point did you begin to realize that technology could be used not only for just notating music, but actually as an integral part of the composition itself. 
Definitely in high school. Um, very early on for me, um, what I would do is I would write these things for my friends, and then I would realize if I made a mistake in Finale, that Finale would just play it how I wrote it. Well, I started writing things that weren't really feasible for instrumentalists to play, but the computer could play it, right? So this was my first little glimpse of, hey, I can write things outside of the box and this computer can play it. I, I don't need the, the real musician to play it, but I, I like this sound that, you know, this piano is playing like a hundred different notes real, real fast. And it sounds really cool to hear it done that way. And so that was kind of my first sequencer type of sound where you, you could arpeggiate something super fast that would just not be feasible in real life or desirable in real life. It would just be too silly. But so in high school, I, I started getting into this MIDI composition and, and sound world. Obviously, the, the sounds are limited there with the, the tone and, you know, the types of sound. But I got this SoundForge program on my computer, and I started combining my MIDI things with samples, audio samples of drums or cymbals or other like vocalizations that I could find on the internet or something just different, but layered with the MIDI that I composed. And so I was started beginning to get that feel of music and technology combining into one. Um, so really that sampling was my first opportunity to, to see that. And that kind of continued uh, from there. When I got early into college, I met a guy named Anthony Barfield, and uh, he is now a well-known composer in the trombone world, um, but he was a trombonist, went to the University of Alabama, and then continued on to uh, Juilliard, and ended up getting folk of Estonia while at Juilliard, and instead of dropping out, he changed to a composition major. He had great ears, perfect pitch, um, really creative dude. And and that transition was pretty seamless for him. And he showed me some projects that he had made or beats, shall I say, that he made in Fruity Loops, uh, which is now called FL Studio. And it was pretty cool that there was a free version of Fruity Loops out there, and you could do a lot with it. I ended up paying for an upgrade, but I, I messed around with Fruity Loops so much and started getting into beat generation and, and doing some really cool things with that. And um, yeah, I used Fruity Loops in college to write a piece for tuba, live tuba, and a beat or a track, which... I called landscapes and it was actually more of some synth soundscapes mixed with a beat that this piece was about. And then I had like an electric guitar solo. I found a plugin that was free and I just went to town with it and made a really crazy sort of like slow jam guitar solo sort of thing. And again, some vocalizations, but yeah, my, my friend Corey Cooper really uh, enjoyed that piece. And again, my friends were the inspiration for the music. So I, I wrote that piece specifically for Corey to play on his recital and, and it went well. And it showed me that there was this good opportunity to have something static and recorded that was also something I composed, I put it together in Fruity Loops and made something as a part of a live performance, but it was something static that the musician could play along with. And, and 
you know, a lot of times live performances are really hairy or, or nerve wracking because you're having to piece it together with another live person. And um, this takes some of that stress away where, you know, that track is going to be right on time, you know, and you can start to um, you can rehearse it with the track and get used to playing it. And it will be the same every time uh, with a pianist. There's always a give and take or if somebody hits a wrong note. You could get flustered or something. So. Yeah, as long as the, the notes are right in the static track, you're good. So I, I think college was and this Fruity Loops experiment of mine was really the taking off point for some of my f- later ideas. So, As we were preparing for the podcast, you shared with me an excerpt of a very cinematic composition that you created. If I can, I'd like to share that with the listeners and then have you tell us a little more about your process and what interests you as a composer, even beyond what we've already talked about. Sure. So this piece was actually just me playing around with a new sample library that I got, uh, which was a VST instrument sample library for brass, strings, and then I also have another library for percussion. I really wanted to see what this library could do, and I'm also an app developer, so I have an app called Run the Realm, which is a medieval storyline built into a running app. And so I was thinking maybe I could create like a little jogging track or something that makes you feel epic and want to keep going. Um, And so that's kind of where this was born from. And I wanted to see what this library could do. So I stacked some of the French horns and trumpets and I used a lot of dissonance that was building up to this sort of fanfare at the end and then just used the drums in the background to, to kind of keep that pulse going. I tried to use 140 beats a minute, which is like a jogging pace. Maybe everyone everyone has their own jogging pace, but that, that was where the tempo came from. And just Mine kind of, is a lot slower than that. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's okay. That's okay. The The... Maybe I can slow it down for other people, but um, yeah. And so this this was really born from that idea, and those instruments sound almost real. Oh, which, it was! I was amazed. Yeah, and it sounds like I paid some people to sit down and record French horn and and trumpet and all that stuff. So. It's amazing what the VST instruments can do these days. It's not just um, synth sounds that you can get, but these real sounding instruments with a lot of control to the the velocity and the, the vibrance of the sound. You can play soft, you can play loud and um, get all across the horns. You know, it, it kind of going back to what I used to do is write things that instruments couldn't play well now i can write things that instruments aren't really good at playing but they sound better with a vst instrument that almost sounds real so it's an interesting time 
Yeah, the technology has, uh, you know, and it's happened so fast. You know, you mentioned using Fruity Loops not that long ago, but now, you know, they want to be, they're renamed to FL Studio because, you know, that just has a little more legitimacy to the, to the sound right yeah fruity loops just sounds too silly for anyone to take it seriously but i i used it exactly for that purpose to be a little bit silly and and make some beats and have fun with it so yeah but you know at the time i mean they were one of the early platforms or companies that came out that was that was doing that sort of thing and so you know i think the fruity loops was uh you know i'm sure a tie-in to the cereal it was a marketing decision at the time because, you know, a lot of people didn't really necessarily know what that was. Right. Well, I know in addition to performing and composing that you also do a lot of recording. So I wanted to ask, when did when did that part start for you and what can you tell me about uh, how that aspect of your musical life has developed? Yeah, so recording really started for me in graduate school at Cincinnati College Conservatory of Music. A friend of mine... Derek Finstermacher, very well-known tuba player, um, uh, he had a pair of Neumann microphones, KM-184s, and he recorded me for an audition tape. And he, you know, he charged me like $50 an hour or whatever. And so after I heard that recording, I said, wow, I could sound really good if I had these microphones. So I justified myself buying the pair of uh, Neumann KM184s by saying, all right, I'm going to use these microphones to record myself for audition tapes. If I record myself X number of hours at giving myself like a $50 an hour quote, I would need to record 40 hours or something to break even and anything beyond that I'm diminishing the you know the the cost per hour of recording with them. Well, I've recorded with those things for uh, 400 hours. I mean it's like uh, maybe more. So that was when I really started getting into recording myself as a trombonist. Um, and since then, I've expanded my microphone cabinet and started recording other musicians with various techniques, uh, mid-side techniques and ORTF, just other mic placement techniques other than just an XY pattern. And then gotten into orchestral recording because my wife is the executive director of a local volunteer orchestra so they needed some help getting good recordings of their concerts and so i said all right i'll set some mics up and and since then since i said okay i'll set some mics up i've done countless orchestral recordings for other organizations because it's it's all hearsay oh this guy you know recorded our concert he could do yours too so that's become a good side hustle for me and very interesting to learn about the different spaces that i record in boomy and dead spaces and how my microphones um react to all of that but yeah definitely sound recording is for for classical music mostly i don't do much live band stuff like pop or anything like that but mostly orchestral and and solo classical music it's been really fun to get into that you know for me it's been interesting because i I kind of straddle this world between traditional kind of classical music and the recording side of things and it's sometimes a little frustrating because people tend to think of the musical performers 
as being the artistic creative people and the music recording engineers and producers as being the kind of technical skill-based side of things. And I've tried to explain to people, you know, obviously if you are a music performer, that requires a great deal of technical skill uh, to learn how to manipulate the instrument and that sort of thing, as well as the creative and artistic and expressive side. But on the recording side of things, it's just as creative in how you set that up to shape the sound the way you want it. Definitely. And what I would say about that is the the mic placement could change the whole recording. You, you could have an XY pattern or you could have like a lot of microphones set up in different configurations and you mix them different ways depending on how large your, your room is and uh, what they're pointing at. You know, for a lot of these microphones, they're directional. And so, you know, if you are off by 20 degrees, that is a completely different sound than the, the other way. So, and then in post-production, just the EQ, the balance, the the spacing, the panning, the everything that you do, the extra reverb you might add, and how that reverb you know affects the sound. All of those things create the final product, and those are artistic decisions that need, as well as technical decisions. But they're definitely artistic in the fact that. You have to have an idea in your mind as to what you're going for or what sounds better to you. And so I don't think there's a such thing as a, a sound engineer that does this mixing and recording that's not also a creative and a, a creative person that uh, has their own ideas about how this music should, should sound. So let me ask for if there's you know someone out there who's interested in creating maybe like a home recording studio or getting more into sound recording, can you offer some advice and maybe about what equipment you think is essential or maybe any resources for learning more about recording that you would recommend? Yeah, and it definitely depends on what they are trying to record. I know even as a trombonist, there are jazz trombone players and then there's classical bass trombone players you know a wide array of types of sound that you're going to want to create and so a lot of that depends on the space you created in uh, even just as much as the microphone that you use because a really expensive nice microphone in a bad space is going to yield bad results um, and vice versa a bad microphone in a great space might also yield a bad result or it could be an okay result. So figure out your space, and then you really only need one thing. You need a microphone that records to something. What I use for simple, quick, efficient, cheap recordings is a Zoom H6N. They also have H2s, H4s, but the the number there is just how many inputs it has. So mine has six inputs. It's got actually a modular capsule that you can change depending on what you're trying to do. And then four XLR inputs that you can plug an external mic into. But these capsules that come with it, I have a mid side capsule and an XY capsule. And they have a few other ones as well that you could plug in. So the mid side capsule, if you're looking to do something in your home, if you can find a dead space or not super live space, the the mid-side capsule can do a lot for you to give you a, a natural but wide stereo recording with mono capability as well. So if you're looking for something cheap, 
I would go with the H6N with the mid-side capsule. The H4 could also work just as well. And then basically you pull that into your computer and the way the Zoom does it, it automatically mixes it to a mid-side. So you're good to go. And you can pull that into your audio editor or into your song or whatever you're you're trying to put together. It really depends on what you're recording for. But um, I find that that works well for voice and for musical instruments. Um, it just has a nice clarity to the sound. Also with a little room sound um, that sounds very natural. So those run about $300, I want to say, $350, $300, something in there. That's a moderate barrier to entry. If you're looking for something cheaper than that, you're, you're going to struggle to get the quality that you might be looking for in a home recording studio. So that's about the price range of a the setup to, to get started. Yeah, I think particularly if you are trying to record music, if you you know if you're doing mainly just like podcasting for example and you're just recording a vocal there's some other things you could get away from but but yeah but then we have to start getting into like frequency ranges and all that stuff so which maybe is for another time yes <laughs> so like i mentioned before you know i started my career in the world of what's considered classical music or what people sometimes refer to as formal music training and then as I moved into the world of music technology, I found it really interesting or really probably frustrating uh, that music, people have this perception that music technology grew out of the recording industry and was considered, you know, informal music, the world of folk music or pop musicians uh, that weren't, you know, formally trained as musicians. I think that you represent a growing segment of the musical world where these traditions or walls between formal versus informal, acoustic versus electronic, or classical versus folk pop music are beginning to intersect. So I just wanted to ask, what's your perception of this, or where do you think we're going as these two worlds more and more are coming together? That's a great question. I think it's hard to tell exactly where we're going, and my guess is as good as yours, but... For me, it's an exploration of sound. And if we combine an acoustic and an electronic element together, that is unique in itself rather than purely acoustic and purely electronic. So it's it's opening up a wide array of experience once we get through the pandemic and get back to hopefully in-person concerts that's a unique sonic experience for the listener in a concert hall or a venue where there's a an acoustic instrument playing along with electronic organized sound or chaos um but it, for me it'd be an organized sound so i don't know where we're heading but i know that these sonic experiences really are something that people are striving for they they desire these experiences. I think humans are very experience-based people. A lot of people are struggling having to do online only. Like we like to be there in person and have an experience, share it with other human beings. And these, this intersection of acoustic and electronic really is one of those experiences. So hopefully we can get back somewhere. I, I think to just drop one reference here, uh, there's a video by an awesome band called Snarky Puppy. And it's a bunch of people 
musicians, but also listeners in a large room, but they all have headphones on. So they're next to each other with headphones on, hearing the mix of the instruments that's playing live. They see it live. They're in the same room as the instruments, but everyone is hearing the mix through their headphones. And so th- they're they're seeing it being created, but also there's the the component where the person doing the mixing has their creative input and balancing the mix and and um, making the sounds. They might be EQing or whatever they're doing on the backside of things, but the listener gets all of that. It's not a purely acoustic version and it's not a pure, purely mixed version. They're getting a little bit of both all at the same time and just feeling, they, they can actually feel the vibrations, I'm sure, of the drums hitting or the amps um, producing the guitar sounds and stuff so I think that's a very interesting and unique experience that those people had in that room and maybe there will be more concert situations where it's like this it's a small audience but still a powerful experience and I think maybe that is something new that we could explore uh, or where we're going who knows well you've taken a lot of time to talk with me today and I really appreciate that yeah you know, as we wrap up, you've shared a composition I think you've been working on that uh, we're going to play for the listeners here on the way out. What can you uh, tell me about this before we listen to it? So before this pandemic happened, um, a friend of mine who also is from South Carolina but is in the ceremonial brass with me, Andrew Reich, is he's a great trombone player and we were going to do a visit out to another South Carolina alumni's school. He's a trombone professor at Moorhead State University, and we were going to visit out there. I wanted to create something that Andrew and I could play as a duet, but two trombones is kind of plain to me at this point, and I wanted something more interesting and more powerful. So I said, well, maybe two trombones and piano. Well, then you have to rely on the school providing a pianist and you don't know who you're going to get and how much rehearsal time. So I just said, you know, I'm going to write something with a track and we can just play it through the speakers. And that way, Andrew and I can rehearse it in D.C. And then we take it on the road and it'll be the same. Exactly what I was talking about earlier, that static track. I also wanted to create something that visiting artists, like say a trombone professor from California comes to the east coast he could play this duet with the host school you know these visiting recitals happen all the time but this would be a good opportunity for each of them could work separately with the track and then it should fit together really easily on the concert day so there's not a whole lot of prep time in person needed if if you have this figured out on your own so that's kind of where this was born from. And I, Whirl Kestrion is the name of it. And the, the word whirl, W-H-O-R-L, means a spiral or spinning concentric circles or something to that effect. And orchestrion is a music-making machine. And I just thought those two words were very interesting and applicable. And so the sounds that you hear in this track simulate a spinning or a machine sound you you hear sort of a tick tock tick tock tick tock sort of not a clock but something else and um so this it's like a spinning 
music making machine. And I just thought that was an interesting idea for this. It's got a faster section at the beginning and a faster section at the end with a slow middle section. So kind of a traditional form, fast, slow, fast. And what you're hearing now, unfortunately, we didn't get to go do this visit. So what you're hearing now is a kind of a poor MIDI trombone performance over top of the actual track that I made. So this is kind of a virtual premiere of sorts of my piece, Horokestrion. Great. Well, let's take a listen.
was so cool. Again, I just want to thank you so much for spending this time with me today. Gosh, there's so much more that we could talk about, and uh, I'd love to maybe do a part two sometime in the near future. That would be really fun, actually, so hit me up anytime. Great. Well, in the meantime, if anyone is interested in uh, hearing more about your music or even if they're interested in, in getting some arrangements, uh, do you have any places that they could go to, to to visit to learn more about what you're doing? Sure. A number of my pieces are for sale or for download at my website, infinitudepublications.com. And a little word about that, infinitude means without limits. And that was the name of my first brass composition in high school. It was called Infinitude. And the way I picked that name was I opened the dictionary and looked at the first word on the page that I flipped to, whatever page it was, and it happened to be infinitude, and I said, hey, that'll work. And um, so I, I kind of championed that without limits. You know, I don't want to be limited by the traditional view of composition or by other people's expectations for my composition. I, I want to do what I want to do, and that's not limited. So I've, I've championed that. So infinitudepublications.com. Great. Well, thank you again for your time today. Uh, thank you for your sharing your music and particularly thank you for your service uh, to our country here in the Air Force. It was great to talk with you. Oh, thanks so much for having me. appreciate that. And that brings another episode of Mu Tech Teacher Talk to a close. This has been your host, Keith, at MewTechTeacherNet.com. If you've enjoyed these podcasts, I would encourage you to tell your friends about it, your colleagues. Hitting that subscribe button is always a big help for us also. If you're looking for other ways to connect with us, I would encourage you to visit our website at www.MewTechTeacherNet.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at MewTechTeacherNet.com or on Twitter at MutechTeachNet. I hope everyone is staying safe and sane during this time. And as always, we're here to advocate, support, inspire, and create the Music Technology Teacher Network.